Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023. It's a date that may go down for historians of technology and the state is a significant one today. The state, the Justice Department, opened its anti-monopoly case against Google, might have huge implications. Meanwhile, the impact of technology on creativity and on the creative class, on writing and filmmaking and music making uh, continues to steal the headlines. Uh, lots of stories still about the strike in Hollywood against AI, the strike between writers and studios, uh, and even uh, the voice pieces of the tech uh, industry recognize that uh, AI is dangerous for creatives, particularly for screenwriters. This Wired piece, for example, suggests that Hollywood screenwriters are right to fear AI. We've done lots of shows on it and longtime viewers of the show and of my work know that I'm very much involved with this. In fact, the beginning of December, I'm going to Barcelona uh, to do a workshop at the Santa Monica uh, Museum, a uh, creative space to address the question of AI and the creative community. And my guest today on the show is also doing this. Uh, she has a new book out. Who wrote this? How AI and the lure of efficiency threaten human writing. It's just out. It's a traditional book. And it's by my guest, Naomi S. Baron, Naomi, welcome. Um, how worried are you by the impact of AI on um, creativity, on writing, on thinking? All right, you've asked three questions. You asked about writing, you asked about creativity, you asked about thinking. When you talk about the writing part, part of the question is, what do we as individuals want to know how to write for ourselves? Another part of that writing question is, will, as the screenwriters worry about, will it gobble our jobs? And it's not just screenwriters who are worried about this. It's obviously um, journalists who worry about this. It's lawyers. It's translators. It's anybody who produces words for some version of a market. And if AI can do what you are traditionally doing, then you may be out of a job. Interestingly, on that question, when things like ChatGPT and then GPT-4 came out, initially um, the technology community and the people who are labor econ uh, economists said, well, no, it's not going to really take away our jobs. Uh, it, there's going to be a, a, a new set of positions and whatever. The most recent uh, data that are coming out are saying, you know, maybe people in white collar, upper middle class jobs have reason to be concerned. Okay, so that's writing, which has two components to it. Creativity is a funny kind of a word because you, you ask 20 people and you'll probably get 20 different definitions of what it means. My own take on the creativity question is that as of now, and I'll sort of quote Stephen King here, who recently said, wrote, um, he's not really worried about AI being creative when it comes to writing because it's not sentient and it doesn't have emotions. Well, those things can be modeled. And as 
GPT-4 and, and its competitors get better and better, um, the stuff that is produced, that is the end product, can look really impressive. But I think the issue with creativity has more to do with us as people and do we care about things that are produced by humans? And we can come back and talk more about that. The last issue is about thinking. And that's a broad topic, needless to say. But one of the things that writing has historically done for us is it has given us a tool for knowing what we think, for pushing us to think, for enabling us visually to see what we thought we meant, to read it and to say, no, that's not really what I had in mind. Or I didn't know what I was thinking until I created those words, those sentences. And yeah, that encapsulates what I actually want to express. Mammy, how would you respond to some people, people who are, tend to be perhaps a little bit more bullish on technology than you or me for that matter, who argue that every new technology always unleashes a degree of paranoia right from when Socrates and Plato argued over the value of writing versus the spoken word and that this, like every new technology, will eventually be integrated by human beings and will actually be a good thing in, in all three senses, writing, creativity, and thinking. Is there any truth to the fact that intellectuals, academics like yourself tend to be rather pessimistic about new things, always fearing the new? Uh, if I might, I will backtrack and say I'm not pessimistic as much as I am cautionary. And by that, I mean human beings should have a choice and should feel motivated to use those choices, to take those decisions about what they would like to do with tools available to them. We know that the process of learning, people usually talk about learning to read, but that also typically uh, has coupled with it the ability to write, not always historically, but for, for in, in modern times it does. We know that learning to read changes your brain. It's not just, oh, I have another skill, or now I know how to do inline skating. No, this changes your brain, just as learning to play the violin changes your physical brain. And the question that we don't have answers to yet is what kinds of things happen as a result of those brain changes. But we know it's not just oh, I learned another skill, or I learned how, to, how to, um, to, to sing a particular song. So if we want the right and the ability and the motivation to choose to use writing as a tool for thinking, as a tool for self-expression, as a tool for personalization, then we have to keep up those skills and we have to practice those skills uh, interestingly, I've done uh, studies with university age students, both in the United States and in Europe, um, particularly in Italy, because that's where I had a pool of graduate students and undergraduates to study. And when I queried them about using AI as opposed to writing for themselves, a number of them, not all, but a number of them said, I don't mind getting suggestions, getting ideas maybe getting some grammatical corrections, particularly if you're not a native speaker of the language that you're writing in, but I want it to remain mine. Uh, one student said about predictive texting that I don't feel I wrote it. 
And she felt unhappy about that because she wanted the messages that she sent, in this case, um, using SMS, because it was in Italy, um, she wanted it to be coming from her and she didn't feel it was any longer if the software um, and the algorithms were telling her what it is she should be, as it were, writing, because that's what other people wrote, because that's how the models work. The subtitle of your new book is, is particularly intriguing. Uh, the title is Who Wrote This? The subtitle is How AI and the Lure um, of Efficiency Threaten Human Writing. The lure means, I guess, the seduction Yes. Why is efficiency so seductive and why is it so dangerous, perhaps? There's so many contexts in, in our everyday lives in which we take the easy way out. So you think of Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is based on notions of heuristics that he and Tversky had developed a number of years ago. But there are lots of other people who have said, you know, not all of our thinking is deep thinking. Not of all our thinking considers every single possibility. Um, there are such notions as the principle of least effort um, from George Zipp from decades and decades ago. There's a theory in psychology known as the cognitive miser theory, which says don't waste more energy on things than you need to. I'm not against efficiency, but sometimes efficiency is not the best avenue. Um, there's a notion that has developed first in the aeronautics industry, but it's now used in talking about use of generative AI or AI more generally, and that is automation bias of saying, well, if something that is automated gave this recommendation or direction on what to do, such as with autopilot, so I said this is a notion that, to my knowledge, developed first in the aeronautics industry, then I guess because all that money and all that time and all that training was spent on it, it must know better than I. And if you read the literature on automation bias in the aeronautics industry, what you find is there are a whole number of crashes or near crashes that came because of trusting the technology. And the same thing now can absolutely happen when you're using uh, these tools for writing. Uh, a game I played with myself in writing the book was to see where I could get Microsoft Editor to mess up grammatically. And it wasn't easy, it wasn't hard because if you're not a fluent speaker or at least a proficient speaker and writer of a language and Microsoft Editor, I mean, that's the tool that a number of us at least use, you know, call it Microsoft Word for simplicity. Um, it comes up with things that are just grammatically wrong. And if you are not a good writer, or let's say you're learning a language that is not your native language, you don't know whom to trust. And there's this bias. There's this sense of, well, efficiently, I'll trust it because I'm guessing, you know, as I like to say, I'm guessing Microsoft must be right because they spent $13 billion to support OpenAI, and it's the OpenAI software now of GPT-4 that's in the Microsoft products, they must be right. So the efficient thing to do is just go with them. And that I don't think people really think like that, though, do they? Do they? You think that people question <laughs> when, they're, when they're on Microsoft Word and it makes a suggestion and you're not particularly comfortable with it, you think to yourself, <laughs> well, Microsoft spent... 13 billion on open AI, so they must be right. I mean, people. Okay, so how many people remember that there were 13 billion spent? 
I can't give you a statistic. Well, several billion, leaving aside the 13 <laughs> or 14 or 20 billion. Well, but, but um, the fact that Microsoft is an investor and a partner of OpenAI, I don't think that makes people but, think but the, more or less of, of, of word. But the th principle is the same to say if there is a system, which is why I brought up the, um, the autopilot in the aeronautics industry, if there's a system that automatically does something, we know, I mean, there, there are many books written on this and more articles than I can count with fingers and toes in the aeronautics industry on the challenges, the problems, the dangers of necessarily trusting the tools given to pilots that are automated. I'm not making that one up. So forget about what, forget about Microsoft Editor for the moment. The, the issue is the same issue. I've taught enough students for enough years since these tools have come out. The most common one that my students use is not so much Microsoft Editor, but a tool called Grammarly, um, which all my students know about. It's only available in English as of now. Um, and it cleans up your, you know, and I'll do that in scare quotes, it cleans up your language. And these days, because it's got various versions of GPT in it, it has three, maybe it's got four now, I don't know, um, but it definitely has three. It gives you alternative sentences. It tells you how, it tells you what it would be a better way to express presumably what you mean. And you don't have to stop and think, well, is that really what I mean? And I can promise you my students use this regularly and they don't always stop and say, no, that's not exactly what I wanted to say. They want to get a good grade. I mean, you know, we could talk about the perils of, of grading and higher education in particular. Um, and they know that Grammarly, as well as ChatGPT, by the way, will do better grammar and better punctuation and spelling is a foregone conclusion, then they're likely to. If you talk with people in the AI industry, particularly in the, um, just before, when, G, when GPT-3 had come out, a number of people, including from OpenAI, but from other companies as well, were saying the way that you know um, a GPT wrote this as opposed to a human is the grammar is too good. I mean, humans make mistakes. The grammar, is really uh, almost perfect, much better than I do when I'm writing an article and I have to go back and fix it up. And so fix let's, it up. let's talk about Grammarly. You mentioned it, that a lot of students are okay. using it. Uh, when you go to the Grammarly website, the Gram okay. Grammarly uh, website, their promise is personalized AI every, everywhere you write. What's wrong with having Grammarly as a friend? You write your stuff and it cleans it up. I mean, you're doing your hard thinking. All it's doing is a little bit of uh, a little bit of polishing at the end, isn't it, Naomi? Uh, well, let, let me cite some more of the research that I've done. I've surveyed uh, 100 students in the United States and 100 in Europe, plus I did some in Australia with a colleague. And we asked them about the differences between writing by hand and writing with a digital device, generally fingers on a keyboard. Okay. And they had a lot of interesting things to say about differences that handwriting could make for thinking. And they said, you know, when I, I'm typing something, you know, on, let's just call it on a, on a laptop, I just throw stuff out there. I don't particularly think, you know, I could rearrange later or whatever. When I write by hand, 
because it's a mess to cross out or whatever the reason, I write more slowly. I think about what I want to say. You are somehow assuming, or maybe, maybe you're suggesting we should talk about, that after students write something, they bother to do a second draft. And the answer is, overwhelmingly, unless you make them turn in a first draft, and then you give them comments, and then you have them do a second draft, one draft and a little bit of touch up around the edges is all you get. And I've read too many thousands and thousands of student papers from reasonably good university students that are not clearly thought through. But isn't that your job as a professor to punish them if they if you <laughs> slovenly work? I mean, when I used to teach college, I used to make it clear that I'm a tough grader. And if their stuff was half-baked, they'd get a half-baked grade. That's just the nature of things. Actually, I see my job not to just grade them as they deserve, but to teach them to do better. And what's but really isn't one teaching us? Sorry, to, I get into trouble for interrupting. That's <laughs> why I'm not a teacher, probably, um, Naomi. But isn't your job to, if not make them fearful, certainly make them recognize that they need to take a lot of time on their writing? And how do you make them do that? The only way you can make them do that, and I have spent years um, of my weekends, my evenings, my vacations, working through student papers to try to teach them to write. And the courses that I teach are not writing courses. I teach linguistics courses, or I teach courses about language and technology or whatever. Interestingly, um, many students resent the comments that I put on their papers. They have said to me, you're not a writing teacher. This is not a writing class. Why are you criticizing my writing? It's not just one student who said this over the years. Second point here is a dirty little secret that uh, was taught to me by college um, writing faculty. That is the people who typically teach uh, first year or freshman students their writing course that first year, typically it's the first year. Um, of college, they will tell you the writing level for their courses by the end of the course tends to have improved from what the students came in with. And then when the students get let loose into other courses where writing is not the sole source of the grade, as it were, the writing declines, the level of writing, the level of commitment. And students will tell you, I'll only put my effort into what I think is going to benefit me. It's a very cost-benefit analysis. You can't blame. I, I, I mean, I take your point. I'm sure you're right. You, you know this stuff inside out. But you can't blame <laughs> OpenAI for that, the fact that students... No, no but, okay, so let's get to OpenAI now. Well, let's take a break first. We are <laughs> talking with Naomi Barron, the author of Who Wrote This? about AI and creativity, writing, thinking. Um, and one publication that does a great job on all three fronts, writing, creativity, and thinking, is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Uh, I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Naomi Barron to talk more about AI and all the opportunities and problems that it seems to be bringing, especially in, in, in the context of writing and reading. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. 
a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can find out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com, a a beautifully edited thing full of uh, high-quality writing. We are speaking with... uh, Naomi Barron, who's an authority on AI and writing and creativity. Naomi, in the first half of the show, we talked about the relationship between AI and writing. But I wonder if the the key relationship, and you wrote about this in an interesting lit hub piece uh, that you you just wrote, um, was the relationship between writing and thinking, um, but also above all else, writing and reading how do we know when something sounds good how do we know when something sounds right and much of that isn't that muchly isn't muchly isn't that associated in many ways with reading of course Uh, you you talk with professional writers um, literary writers let's just move the professional aside and say literary writers what they will tell you is the way that you become a good writer is reading and reading and reading. So, of course, those are intimately tied, integrally tied together. Um, you mentioned reading, and we'll come back to that, or I'll, I'll, I'll launch into that and thinking for a moment, and then we can segue to writing. Uh, a lot of the research that I did uh, before this book had to do, that's the mail arriving. (laughs) Um, A lot of the writing I did before this book um, and the research was on reading digitally versus reading in print. And you may have done shows on this and there's a huge discussion of it. What we know is that uh, statistically, people do better in comprehension tests when they read in print, most stuff, at least informational stuff, than when they read digitally. But then when you ask them why, what's the difference between reading in one medium versus another? And what they will often tell you, and I have hundreds of students of varying middle school and high school and university age um, telling me this, that they slow down, that they think more about the words. They get engaged. If it's fiction, they identify better with the characters. That is, there's a different character of reading when you use one technology, because print is the technology, then when you use a digital technology. That's why I was talking about handwriting versus writing with your fingers on a keyboard. So the question coming back to thinking is, what is the medium for, whether it's reading or writing, that best engages your brain? And part of the challenge, now I'll jump to AI, Part of the challenge is you don't need to do much brain engagement except by figuring out how to write a really smart prompt. And then if you want to turn in a chat GPT essay as yours, thinking about how you have to personalize the text so that it looks as if you wrote it. And by personalizing it enough, you can fool the new tools that have been coming out. Um, GPT-0 is the best known of them, but there are uh, at least half a dozen or more out on the market now um, to, in principle, detect, did a human write this? Did um, a non-human write this, you know, a GPT? Um, But the game for writing shouldn't be, 
can I get a good grade? It shouldn't be for some things, not all things, but some things. Um, can I get it done fast? There's some things I'm perfectly happy to get done fast. The fact that um, going to journalism now and artificial intelligence, um, these tools have been around now for quite some time uh, for writing things like sports stories. You know, who won this game? I don't really care if that is written automatically. I don't care if um, the Fortune 500 quarterly reports are done automatically. That doesn't bother me one iota. What bothers me, if we, what bothers me is if we lose the feeling that, you know what, the things that humans have used writing for that are expressions of self, that are learning about oneself, that are emoting, and if we don't maintain the skills necessary for doing that, we don't have the motivation to try because we say, I don't know how to do that anymore. You wrote... Um... You described uh, uh, personal expression as both an art form and as a craft, and you suggest that writing is a craft. But many crafts yeah. die out. You know, knitting has died out. We don't make our own clothes. Are we any poorer for that? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> some of us still... Well, some of us may, but most of us don't have the time or the interest. Yes. Or, 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 the or, the or whatever, whatever. You're right. So the question is, is literacy different from sewing? We used to make our own clothes because there was no way to manufacture them. And there was a time when manufactured clothes were far more valuable than handmade because they looked so much better, right? And now, if you want to get handmade suit, I promise you it's much more expensive than if you get a, an off-the-rack suit. And, and part of the question there is, do we care um, about human effort being put into something. Writing, I believe, is different from a number of skills. Think about why people still go to concerts, to live concerts, to bother, I mean, let's call it post-COVID, although it really isn't, um, in a, you know, after the, the, the first waves. Um, why is it they bother to trundle out to a concert? I don't care what kind of music it is, pay the big bucks, um, stay to hear something live. When they could hear the same artist or, or symphony or whatever it happens to be, probably do an even better job in a recording. Why do we do that? Because we care about humanity. We care about connectivity. There, you know, there was this big assumption when Netflix started becoming large, or the, you know, if there was blockbuster video before then. Uh, no one's going to go to the movies anymore. People really want to go and sit with other human beings. Writing is a human art. It's the same thing. But most with, people, you know, I take your point on the concerts, but in that sense, we're consumers. Most people don't write. They, they go to college for three or four years. They have to take classes with academics like you, as you suggest. Most <laughs> of them don't like doing it. Most of them cheat or are lazy. And then they get out and they don't have to write. And people don't write letters anymore. You can't blame the computer for that, really. I mean, no. uh, so... so It was that the telephone got there first. Um, blame that. Right, so the telephone destroyed letter writing. Uh, as you say, technical writing is neither here nor there. The vast majority of people don't write in their in their lives. It's one thing to go to a concert or go to a movie, um, but but writing is is a different 
kind of craft or activity that requires much more effort. Okay, and with or without computers, people simply don't do it. Well, yes and no. Um, what do I mean by that? There are a number of schools that really value writing, probably Bard um, and Annandale and Hudson does so yeah, more. These are fancy than... elitist places that cost oh, well, 50 grand a, a year to go for the well, children know, of the new aristocracy. That, excuse, that... Me, excuse me, I just lectured at Bard a few months ago, and I promise you a number of the people truly are not children of the elite, and um, they're not going to be professional writers. But they see writing, I mean, I will just say they're fortunate to be encouraged to keep journals, to think about things, to write, write things down. You know, people used to keep diaries and you'll say, oh, who would keep a diary? And then you're supposed to keep a blog and then that becomes public if you want to make it public. We, we lose something. I mean, we lose something when we say, gee, we all have automobiles. What do we need to walk for? Well, look at the average girth and poundage of the of Americans, uh, there are consequences for saying I'm giving up on something. So, what's the equivalent? You 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 connected the, the the epidemic of obesity with people's reliance on the motor car. What's the equivalence of obesity when it comes to the fact that people aren't writing anymore? You okay? How much do you know who you are? I mean. Okay, let, let me, let, let's take democracy. Okay, you know, that's under a lot of threat at the moment. I saw this morning's news and what was happening on Capitol Hill. I just leave it at that. Um, one of the things that writing does is it helps us see what we're thinking. It helps us say, do I really believe this? Do I agree with this? As opposed to... Uh, you know, I, I saw someone said it, it must be true. And, you know, reading goes with writing and the amount that Americans read um, would challenge a wet squeegee, <laughs> you know, for, for last place. We've, we're not engaging with literacy more generally. And no, I don't blame artificial intelligence for this. And it's not simply television. It's, it's, it's a complex story as to why we don't read. And by the way, when you look at the statistics in a number of other countries, there are a number of other countries, particularly in Western Europe, that aren't reading much these days either. So it, it, literacy is a package deal in a sense. Aren't we reading social media and writing on social media? Lots of people suggest oh, that it yeah. actually represents a, a golden <laughs> age. Uh, and, and often on social media, people are writing and writing nonsense. We did a show yesterday with Mike Rothschild, who talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene's blog or social media posts about the Rothschilds and space lasers and ruining the world. So, I mean, the fact that people are writing on social media doesn't make them any wiser. Right. And I can do, uh, you know, I, I can write nasty notes and stick them under people's doors and that doesn't make them thoughtful and that doesn't make me uh, a, a more intelligent person just because I physically wrote something. It has been argued, and it's probably true, but I, have no, I don't think anyone has data on it that are, that are worth anything, um, that the number of words that we are reading these days because of social media uh, is larger than any time in the past. But, you know, there's, there's a stop sign at the end of my block and, and I can read that too, but that doesn't do anything for me intellectually. It tells me, look out for other cars and maybe the police if I don't stop. 
The issue about writing is what is the quality for your brain? I'm not asking you to win a Pulitzer Prize. I'm not asking you to win a National Book Award. I'm asking you to have some way to get yourself to think, to weigh people's arguments. And one of the ways you can do that is by analyzing for yourself what their arguments are. That's what college was supposed to be about, um, at least outside of the um, mining and, and Aggies and so forth that grew up in the United States. It was supposed to teach you to reflect. And writing is one of the best ways since the development of writing, and that goes back at least 3,000 years, depends on the society as to when, because it was invented many, writing was invented many times, we lose a tool for knowing ourselves. We lose a tool for civil discourse. I can put all kinds of screeds out as, as, as X's, I guess, as opposed to tweets, um, but that doesn't make me think. We know, that an off, we know that the things that used to be retweeted were often the things that were, um, uh, how, how should I express this, um, were either wrong or were, um, uh, were twisted or misinformation. This is no way to use the written word. And I don't care which medium you use it on. Um, we're, we're, we're degrading a tool that we have available to us. And, and I, I'll give an analogy that it probably is way too strong uh, we're killing our environment, thank you, because some people make money from the things they do. If we want to degrade our human abilities to think, one of the best ways to do that is to not take reading and writing, and I'll put those two together, with any degree of seriousness. And you look at what's happening, again, I'll speak specifically in the United States, at what the degradation and the amount of reading and writing that we do perhaps correlates with what's happening to us as a democracy. So the fact that we don't read is undermining American democracy. I would not be the first person to say that. <laughs>